We are in the fourth week uh, of our series in the book of Jonah. Um, this is a series that we're doing kind of as an all-church event. Uh, our kids and youth are studying the book of Jonah, same passage of Scripture that we're studying today. Um, so hopefully families engage in conversations. We're also uh, trying to tell stories of God's relentless pursuit of us. There are, there's a wall out there. You can read some of the stories that people have already written about how God has pursued them, even in times of failure, in times of darkness or despair. And uh, you may want to write your own story on a card and pin it to the wall out there. Just share it with the body of Christ that we may rejoice together in God's wonderful, relentless, pursuing grace for us. Jonah, so far, uh, just a, a brief background of where we're at. He has run from the Lord by boarding a ship. Uh, headed in the opposite direction of God's call for him. He's encountered a great God-sent storm out there on the Mediterranean Sea, which was only calmed by tossing Jonah overboard. He was rescued, swallowed by a great God-sent, what, fish. Uh, Then after being coughed up by the fish, he says, I think I'm going to go on to Nineveh and fulfill God's call. And he warns them to turn from their evil ways or God's wrath was going to come upon them and they would not survive that. So they accepted the message of Jonah there and they turned from their evil ways and God had mercy on them and spared their lives. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. And so now we come to the fourth chapter and we would have the expectation that all is well. Right? Mission accomplished. Jonah has been fruitful. And we would expect all is well with Jonah's soul. But before I read the four verses that we're going to look at, let me ask you something today. I'll give you a scenario and see how you would respond. But let's uh, suppose you're a good, solid Christian person. Well, let's not just suppose it. Let's just say it, okay? You're a good, solid Christian, good person, right? And uh, you've lived most of your life enjoying this good relationship with Jesus. Uh, You go to church regularly. You study the word. You pray about the issues in your life. You pray for the salvation of those around you that you know. And you've participated in many ministries through the years. You've led this good, clean, wonderful, blessed life. But let's say that one day you find out that your neighbor is the opposite of you. You've always known there was something a little off about him. Anybody have a neighbor like that? And then one day you see police cars at his house and he's being taken away because he's been charged with some serious crimes. And as the story unfolds, you find that Not only is he a murderer, but he has tortured his victims. One of his victims is somebody that you know. You always wondered what happened to that person. And you seethe with this anger towards the evil in your neighbor. He's a vicious, evil, ruthless person. And you're so glad that he's been caught and that you're rid of him. He's convicted, he's sentenced to death, and on the day of his execution, a local pastor visits him and shares with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he breaks, he repents of his sin. He confesses as his Savior, 
Christ the Lord. And he cries in anguish over the pain he has caused in so many people's lives. Later that day, he is executed. And years later, you die. And when you get to heaven, you find it to be the most glorious place. And guess who is enjoying it with you? Your earthly neighbor. You have the same privileges. You have the same blessings. And your heavenly homes are right next door to each other. I just threw that one in. So let me ask you. Don't you just love God's mercy? Because this is where Jonah's at. God had mercy on these sadistic, Jew-hating, ruthless, evil Ninevites. And he's not happy. He's mad. Jonah 4, 1 through 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall, which is prevent this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I just knew it, I knew it. I know that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. I hate that. And you're the one who relents concerning calamity. the obvious conclusion. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For death is better to me than life, if this is the way life is going to be with you. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? We'll explore that question more next week. So needless to say, Jonah believes God should act differently. Jonah just believes in his heart that God is wrong on this. And so I have to ask myself, and and I ask you the question, have you ever been there? God just ought to do things differently in this particular situation. His intervention, or his lack of intervention, is deeply troubling he's supposed to hear and answer my prayers he's supposed to keep my kids safe he's supposed to make sure i pay my bills oh and why is he blessing those people does he see what they do does he know how they act there's something intrinsically not fair about him we hear straight from jonah why he had fled god's call in the first place he wasn't Get this, he wasn't afraid of failure in Nineveh. He was afraid of success in Nineveh. He knew God would have mercy on them, and they didn't deserve it. Jonah's mad. He had held out hope that God's wrath would overcome God's mercy and destroy those Ninevites. But he knew all along it 
wouldn't. He knew God too well. He knew he would be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, such terrible things. He knew what James would write later in the New Testament that um, mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you, aren't you glad? It says that uh, this, this mercy, this expression of God's mercy for these terrible people displeased greatly Jonah. And the adjective, the Hebrew adjective here is gadol, translated great. It's a theme throughout the book. It, 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 this word gadol appears all through the story. There was a gadol storm. There was a gadol city, Nineveh. There was a gadol wind. The sailors on the ship had gadol fear. There was a gadol fish. Once the storm calmed, the sailors now had a gadol fear of the Lord. Nineveh had a gadol king. And now Jonah has gadol displeasure. The word displeasure in the Hebrew is raha. It's often translated as wickedness, harmful, affliction, evil even. So we can surmise that Jonah saw God's merciful treatment of the Ninevites as a gadol, a great raha, wickedness. He is so upset over the injustice of mercy. It's not warranted for the Ninevites, in his opinion. This whole sense of justice, don't we kind of get that early on in life? <laughs> we want people to be held accountable and to suffer for their wrongs, don't we? I mean, I've got three grandsons. These three little kids demand justice when they're wronged. I watch my grandkids when one goes to the parent complaining about mistreatment. There's a short investigation. The perpetrator has been convicted. He's sentenced. And the victim of the crime is standing off to the side, watching the punishment being carried out with great satisfaction. Right? You're getting what you deserve. You see, John is in a bad place here, isn't he? Disagreeing with God is not a good place to be. He believed with his whole heart that God should act differently. It's not the way we operate here on this planet. And I say, praise God. What is it in Jonah, what is it in you and me that brings us to this kind of unmerciful place? I think we need to find out. It's not a, not a good place to be. And the first thing that I would say about Jonah here that we need to see about him is that Jonah underestimates the evil of his own sin. And people do it all the time. Perhaps we do it. We, even when people get caught red-handed in sin, uh, we, we, people tend to deflect responsibility or uh, 
or find a worse sinner to talk about, right? You ask a kid, did you take that without permission? And sometimes the response will be, well, you'll never guess what Bobby took. Your boss will say, why are you so late to work today? And your response is, well, you can't imagine what I have to go through at home. My wife and daughter live in that bathroom. And maybe if you paid me more, I could afford a house with two bathrooms. We're kind of masters at deflection, right? And spiritual growth, spiritual maturity begins to take root in our life when we own our sin. And we see our sin through the prism of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, there was this severe price that was paid. His, his nail-scarred, feet-scarred death. So that my activities, my sinful activities, could be completely atoned, paid. So how could I bring judgment on someone else's sin when I've truly come to terms with God and how He sees my sin? We never hear about Jonah talking about his sin in the book. We don't, uh, he doesn't want to face this sin of rebellion about how he turned and ran the other way, but he also, I don't think, wants to face his judgmentalism about the Ninevites, his arrogance. Because in some warped kind of way, he feels his position justified. (laughs) Michael Wells writes this, he has this quote, the measure of a disciple's judgmental attitude is just about the same as his distance from dwelling in the love of Jesus. The measure of a disciple's judgmental attitude is just about the same as his distance from dwelling in the love of Jesus. We all know that the root of judging others is pride. (laughs) Pride always seeks to minimize or hide personal weakness. It it always is quick to expose the failures of others and... uh, We look at the story there in chapter 3 of Jonah. The Ninevites did the exact opposite. They owned their sin. They admitted it. They pled for mercy. They wore the sackcloth, the itchy goatskin garment, and uh, they repented. They were so keenly aware of the violation of him that they had done. And we must... Be careful as we grow in our understanding of God's amazing grace that that sin, sin is never inconsequential. It's always destructive and we're completely forgiven, yes, because of what Christ has done for us. And because of his life in us, we grieve over our rebellious acts. Sometimes I hear people who, who really understand God's grace say things like this after they sin. They'll say things like, uh, oh, that was just my ugly old flesh raising its head. No big deal. Just the pesky old flesh. 
just another way of trivializing or minimizing. You see, our, our, our sin, <laughs> the, 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 the keen awareness, when we own it, we come to grips with it. It just flies us back into the arms of Jesus and say, why did I ever walk away? Why did I ever grow distant from you? Because if I get distant from you, this is what I do. And so I'm coming back. I can't live this without you. And I'm here to tell you that when you minimize sin or you see. Your sin, the way Jonas avoided his, you get to a place where you end up saying, God, you're wrong. It's really okay that I do this. The second thing we need to see about Jonah is this, that Jonah underestimates the reach of God's grace. This is a better point than the first one, isn't it? Easier to digest. Jonah underestimates the reach of of God's grace. This whole story is about God's relentless pursuit of fugitives, even when they're mad. He, God is keeping after Jonah. And, and you know, there's a part of us that can understand that. He's a Jew. He's a prophet. Yeah, I'm not letting you get away. You're, you're one of my guys. Yet God also goes after those Ninevites. As sinful a city as ever was, folks. Oh, yeah. Jonah, now he's pathetic in a lot of ways, granted. But Nineveh was perverse and sadistic. And the story just continually shows us that God, his ability to clean up things is infinitely greater than our ability to mess things up. Aren't you glad for that? (laughs) No matter... No matter how much we can mess something up, God's grace is greater. It is so relentless that it tracks down both these kinds of runners from God. He he tracks down the rule breakers and he tracks down the rule keepers. Because they both need him. He just keeps coming. You know, a story like this, the story of the prodigal son is similar. You got the rule keeper and the rule breaker. and It, it, it exposes this kind of relentless pursuit of God's grace and how he, 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 want, he knows that we're going to choose one of those two paths. We're either going to be kind of like a prodigal and try to self-pleasure or we're going to be a real straight-laced, I'm going to do it right kind of person and follow the rules and We kind of each have a tendency towards one or the other. And he knows how lost we are either way. And and I think about that story when I think about the ministry of the church. And is that what we do? Do we relentlessly pursue the the prodigals out there and the the Ninevites and the just the lost, broken, evil, wicked people? And do we share with the rule keepers and the religious and the legalistic and uh, how good his grace is? And 
how compassionate he is and how he is slow to anger. He is abundant in loving kindness, another word for mercy. You know, Tim Keller has this paragraph, I've read it before, but it says, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. However, in the main, our churches today do not have this effect. The kind of outsiders Jesus attracted do not bother coming to our churches, even our most avant-garde or up-and-coming, cutting-edge ones. We tend to draw button-down, moralistic people. The licentious and liberated or the broken and marginal avoid church. And that can only mean one thing. If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. Ouch! But when I look at Jonah's situation, that's where he's living. His message, his feelings, were all contrary to the message of God. And He took it a step further. God, your message is offensive. It offends my religious ways. And I guess I would tell you, grace is always offensive to rule keepers. <laughs> Just is. The third thing we need to see about Jonah was this, that uh, Jonah underestimates God's grand mission. All, all he could see was the complete injustice of God's mercy in this particular situation. Can you imagine what Jonah wanted? He, he, he knew the history. He knew how merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness God was. But just this once, God, could you be different? You're always the same, and it drives me crazy. He couldn't step back and see how this little, his little life fit into this big story of God and man. He couldn't see that God is unwilling to just write people off and cast them aside because of their sinfulness or their failure. He didn't want to see that God's grace to be truly grace had to be completely unmerited, undeserved, and unearned. A gift. You know, I remember when I was going through the struggle of leaving the denomination I grew up in and uh, the turmoil of that decision in my life many years ago. It was difficult because, believe it or not, I, my personality is a rule-keeping personality. And people just didn't do that. I mean, you're just loyal. And it wasn't until much later in life where I look back, and I, especially in studying Jonah's life here, you see the narcissism in all of that thinking. It's not about me and some particular situation of ministry that I'm in. It's about this grand mission of God to reach a lost people with the good news of His grace. It's not about denominations or it's not about non-denominations. 
I like that. Let's say it again. It's not about denominations or non-denominations. It's not about this style of ministry or this brand of teaching or whether you have church buildings or meet in the park or whatever. We are all very small cogs in this beautiful grand mission of God to reach as many people as possible before He comes. And in order for us to be so pure in our understanding of Him and what He wants to do in us, we have to understand that we are prone sometimes to certain Prejudice? Oh, I'm not prejudiced, right? Bias? You see, Jonah's problem was not only that these Ninevites were evil, they weren't Jewish. God had made it clear that Jews were his people. and They were outsiders. They had no claim on grace and God had no obligation to them. And whether you believe it or not, um, we have our biases and preferences when it comes to people who are different than we are, right? Not a whole lot of amens on that. Uh, You don't see yourself that way, right? I want to make some announcements here today. Guess what? God is not a Republican. Hmm? That's news, isn't it? And God is not a, uh, he's not an American. You know that? God's not a Caucasian. God is not middle class. We kind of knew that one already. God doesn't prefer a particular race. You see, Peter dealt with this over in Acts 10 with the Cornelius thing you can read about it but he's dealing with his own bias i can't go to those gentiles and he concludes this towards the end of that chapter god is not one to show partiality god is not one to show partiality to you or me or anyone god loved the clean-cut rule-keeping jew jonah And God loved the sadistic, evil, wicked, Gentile Ninevites. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce. There is but one good, and that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. So I have to wrestle with this. Where have I thought God should have acted differently? Where have I tended to minimize my own sinfulness? And you know, maybe I re- maybe I refuse to look at my sin through the eyes of those I've hurt. Maybe I've written my sin off as inconsequential because of some sin-excusing theology I find convenient. Oh, where have I preferred justice for someone rather than mercy? You don't know what they did to me. I'm deeply wounded and I hope they never come to Christ because they don't deserve to be in heaven. Does God love them? 
And where have I thought more of myself than I ought? Romans 12, 3. Thinking that my little life-changing decision was such a big deal while ignoring this whole grand mission of God. Have I thought my life more special than others or more deserving or more useful to God? Maybe, there, maybe God is saying to me, own the depth of my pride or my lust or my greed or my sin. And see the limitless power of his grace. And in my brokenness over my sin, but the awareness of the receiving of his grace, I cooperate with him in the grand mission he has to use people like me there's one good and it is God and all three of these things converge at the cross you know that right our, our, our deep sin is just open and it's it's met by this infinite amazing grace so that his mission to redeem lost souls can be accomplished And I want to close by reading one of these all-star passages, if you will. The ending of 2 Corinthians 5. And just let it, let it marinate and savor in your soul this morning. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? He is a new creature. The old things, what? Passed away. And behold, new things have come. And now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And I don't know why, gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation, mercy, grace for the sinner. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There is only one good, and it's Him. One of the greatest verses on the gospel. God made Jesus, He made Him who knew no sin, perfect He was, to be complete sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I don't know, that moves me. Let's pray. Father, you know, uh, you know where I'm at today. You know where every person is in their walk with you today. And Father, I, I pray that as, as we were t working our way through this message, that there would have been those moments where something would come to our minds that says, well... Yeah, I have kind of trivialized my sinfulness there. I have kind of, kind of just 
grown accustomed to it. That's just the way I am. And I've kind of a, I've not really owned it and seen it through the cross and the eyes and the filter of the cross. Or maybe somebody has put some restraints on your grace and said, maybe of themselves, I've gone one too far. His grace can't reach me now. And or somebody else has done something that's just over the line, that grace has kind of stopped short of that. And I pray, Father, that there would be this awareness that your grace, your grace has no limit. There's no measure which we can put to it that defines it. Oh, Father, if there's if there is a me-ism that has restricted us from being a part of your grand mission to the world, and oh, perhaps there's this morning where we just kind of let go and we say, Lord, you use me however I'm available. Uh, use me significantly or insignificantly. I'm just yours, and uh, I want to know the fullness of you living and breathing and working through me. Your plan is far better than mine. Give me your heart today. For your heart is always good. It's always gracious. It's always compassionate. It is slow, slow to anger. And oh, so rich and abundant in loving kindness, mercy. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please.